Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Terry Hansen Mead. Terry is a multi-award winning author of Piloting Your Life, the managing partner of Solutions to Projects LLC and Class Bravo Ventures, and an advocate for women through all of her platforms including her YouTube channel and blog, especially Midlife Women. As an angel investor, Terry invests in startups that have products or services that expands the power and influence of women. Terry, a mother of two college-aged kids, is based in Redwood City, California, and in her spare time loves to cook, plays tennis, and flies helicopters around the San Francisco Bay Area, especially under the Golden Gate Bridge. Hi, Terry. Welcome to Woman to Woman podcast. Good morning. It is so lovely to see you. I just, uh, you're always such an energy giver. So it's a delight to be here. Thank you. So let's get started with your childhood. So you spent your childhood in California. You're still located in California. So where did you grow up and how was your childhood? Uh, So I was born in San Francisco, grew up in the East Bay, moved back to San Francisco after grad school. And then about 20 years ago, moved down to the peninsula to Silicon Valley. So I was truly blessed to grow up in, you know, an amazing place with so many opportunities. Um, I had a really unusual childhood uh, in that I worked for my dad's CPA firm starting at the age of nine, doing filing. I did tax returns and audits. Well, I was doing tax returns and financial statements by 16, audits and reviews at 20. My dad wanted me to take over his CPA firm and I got my MBA instead so that uh, I wouldn't (laughs) wouldn't have to do it. I have an identical twin. So I had uh, a little bit of an unusual childhood in that I shared a wound rather than a room, but a womb with someone else and then had a younger brother. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. My dad worked a ton, was a total workaholic, had his own business. And all of that really laid a foundation for who I am today. And at 51, some of the things I'm still trying to recover from and change so that I can really enjoy the next half century of my life. So you you have done some incredible things, but along the way, did you ever have a certain profession in mind that you really wanted to pursue maybe at high school level or so? Uh, at 16, I think I said I wanted to be the uh, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company by the time I was 30. I had a soccer coach who thought he was well-meaning, but really was not very nice to tell me that I was going to be fantastic with my career, but I was going to suck with my love life. I mean, who says that to a 16-year-old? So I think there was a decision that I made at that point. At that point, I didn't want kids. My career was going to be super important. I didn't want to be like other women that I saw in the world who were reliant upon um, the men in their lives. And I was determined to be independent and own my own destiny. But no, I didn't have a specific industry. I didn't have a specific career. Um, At that point, you know, in high school and even in college, I worked for so many different companies, whether it was through my own path or through my dad's clients, who I was just kind of passed around in between and just got amazing experience through. So were there certain people that really helped you shape who you are today? My dad absolutely had an influence on me. Some of our clients were business clients, as well as we had their personal tax returns, financial situations. And so there were various different things over the years that I just picked up on in terms of, I do want that. I don't want that. I do want that. So there were people who had influence, but, you know, I never really had a mentor. A lot of people who tried to get in the way of me trying to be successful, telling me that I was not good enough or I shouldn't be paid enough money. My dad being one of them. (laughs) 
you know, there weren't very many people who were actively encouraging me with my career in terms of were steering me in a certain direction. Um, I'd have people kicking me under the table to not say things or not do things. So a lot of those people influenced me in my life, but I think probably not in such a great way. I did get an executive coach about 20 years ago. Um, I still work with her on and off to this day. Her name is Beverly Ryle. She's out of Massachusetts. We have never met in person. It has been a virtual, I was her very first virtual client. And I would say she's really helped to shape me to be the more confident person now than later on. Um, So she's had a really positive influence in my life. People over the years have had an influence, but sometimes it's the things they don't say or the things that they say, but a lot of it has been very more on the negative side and less on the positive side. So I'm just curious, 20 years ago, the executive coaching wasn't such a big thing, right? Nowadays, like everybody talks about it. Everybody knows there's a need for them. What inspired you to reach out to somebody, not even in your own town? Again, remote relationships, again, are very in thing right now, but not 20 years ago. So what happened for you to even seek a mentor that was like across country for you? That is a really great question. So I was uh, seven months pregnant with my first child, Adam, when um, my company, I was working for a biotech at the time and my company was acquired. And I was a little, I was worried because um, we didn't really have a lot of protections as pregnant women. I was, I was ambitious and I really wanted to climb and develop my career. And just because I had kids didn't mean that my career wasn't going to thrive or so I thought. So I decided to prove to the new CFO that I was uh, working for at the time that I was worthy through whatever the transition was going to be through the acquisition. And so I made uh, what turned out to be a very strategic mistake, trying to show just how strong and powerful and fantastic and assertive I was, all the things that I think the Seattle-based company wasn't looking for and didn't really appreciate. I think there was some insecurity about the Seattle company acquiring a San Francisco-based company. And as a result, I ended up going out on maternity leave a month early because of the abuse abuse that I suffered from the hands of, unfortunately, another woman who was a CFO and had preterm labor, um, ended up caring to term, but realized while on a maternity leave that I didn't want to go back into a toxic situation. And so I reached out to a friend of mine who worked for Revlon, who was working, whose boss was working with an executive coach back East and they made the introduction. And uh, I just started working with her because I wanted to be in a healthier place mentally and physically when I looked for my next job. This also triggers another question. And we've had this discussion so many times at different forums. A lot of times, Perception maybe, but women don't support other women as much. We are tough on other women because we're like, okay, I went through this. Others also have to be at that same level to get what we got. Do you see that as a case? And what do you think we can really do to get out of that mode? Like, I think we all need to support each other to get to the highest point faster rather than put artificial boundaries around ourselves. Well, I think our generation, you and I are squarely in Gen X. I think we are stepping away from that scarcity mindset that there's only room for one woman at the table, one woman at the top. I think we are actively working to be supportive of other women in a way that the generations before us um, didn't or didn't have the luxury of doing. And I talk about this in my book, Piloting Your Life, because there's, there's a time that I question is like, why didn't anyone tell me what to expect when 
I turned 40? Or why were, why weren't there more women supporting me as I was going through my, you know, ascending through my career, taking on new opportunities, whether it was personally or professionally. And I think, you know, part of it was the, the scarcity mindset. There really was room for only one woman at the top. And so they had to fight, kick, scream, bite in order to get to the top because that was the only way to get there. And so if there was only one spot and you have five super qualified women, you tear down the other women. I think the, the, the thought was that you tear down the other women in order to make that opportunity available to you. I am a firm believer that when we have more of an abundance mindset, that when we have the opportunities to create more opportunities for other women and support other women, it creates this lovely snowball effect of more and more opportunities. So the more that we can not just look out for ourselves, but look out for opportunities, whether it's making an introduction, like I did to you earlier to two other amazing women that I think would be great for this podcast. Yes. It took me, you know, 10 to 15 minutes to craft the email, to make sure that it came out. Just, I hope that it looked like it took a little bit of time to craft the email. It meant I was a little bit late in getting my hair and my makeup done for this, but the, but the sacrifice was worth it in order to be able to make that um, introduction to open up those doors. It's more work for us women, which drives me crazy that to make those opportunities available, to really work on leveling the playing field, equalize the power situation that we have to do more work to do it. But those little things will start to add up if we all do just a little bit. And then we make it so that there are more opportunities that are available. So many people, when they have this aha moment in their life, you know, they'll write a blog, they'll pick up the phone or go up on stage and talk, which you're a speaker too. What inspired you to write a whole book? That's not easy. It takes quite a bit of time and effort. So piloting a new life, amazing book, doing extremely well. What made you write it? I decided to become an angel investor uh, about six and a half years ago. So when I was 45, I became an angel investor. Um, and here in the Silicon Valley, you would think that that would have been kind of a no brainer for me, especially since my dad was an investor when I was, um, when I was younger, he invested, you know, throughout his entire life. You'd think that I would know that becoming an angel investor was a thing. I didn't know that I could do it. And so when I started going to events and um, realizing that I was very, quickly dismissed, not only as a woman, but a woman over the age of 40, that I just started paying attention and create, trying to create more opportunities, get more women involved in the investing ecosystem, support more women in general. And as I was going through perimenopause, as I was approaching, you know, 50, I started to realize that there were so many things that nobody told me to what to expect. And so, and I also wanted to do speaking engagements and I thought having a book was kind of the, the business card for speaking engagements. It was kind of a required thing. So I thought, okay, I'll write a book. And then it was like, well, what am I going to write on? Well, I've been doing this piloting your life podcast. You know, maybe I could do a spinoff on that, do something for women. I'm a midlife woman. I'm struggling with perimenopause approaching 50. And before you knew it, um, I'd hired a writing coach to help me write it. And over the course of nine months, I researched for a couple months, wrote and birthed my book baby on September 1st, 20, uh, 2019. And so it was really just kind of this evolution. And once I had cut the idea, I had the writing coach to help me with it, who's going to help me self-publish. It just, it just kind of came about. I just, it was, it was an awesome experience and I'm working on an, on a second book, but this time it's going to be fiction. So I can put out into the world, the vision of the world that I want, but in a easily consumable fashion. That was my next question. Any other books coming? So while you answered that one for me. 
Yeah. So yeah, the next one, it was going to be a nonfiction book. And then a friend of mine, my friend Candace challenged me. It's like, why don't you put your vision of the world um, into a fiction book and make it so that it's really easily accessible. That one's taking longer COVID, you know, I had no creative juices during the first year of COVID. And then in the last year I've been working a lot as a consultant. So haven't had as much bandwidth kids have taken up time. So my hope is in the next six weeks, I'll roll off a client project and then I'll be able to get her name was Dahlia is the title of the book. And hopefully I can get it out by the end of the year. Now, all the best. We'll be watching out for that. So speaking of kids, so you have two kids and clearly it was at the time where you were trying to make something of yourself career wise. How was that time period for you? And can you just based on your experience, tell us a few challenges that you had and what did you do to overcome those challenges? Oh my gosh. You know, 21 years ago when I was pregnant with Adam, he'll turn 21 in April 12th. It's, it was so different back then versus now in terms of, I mean, there, there's still the challenges. I think, unfortunately, that the millennia, millennial women are facing in terms of um, trying to have a, a very successful career and be able to have kids at the same time. But I was Gen, I'm Gen X. And so we were told we could have it all. And I think that's a fallacy. I don't think it's realistic that we can have it all in a society that really doesn't support women, doesn't provide for um, the caretaking, doesn't pay us the same amount. It's, there's so many things that are that are external challenges, not to mention the internal challenges. I was one of those women who said I was going to work right up until the time that I gave birth. And then as soon as I was done, I was going to get right back to working and that having a baby wasn't going to change me. I was one of those ridiculous women. And it turns out that it absolutely changed me. And I can't imagine my life without children. And it, it has been incredibly challenging trying to balance. I look back at some of the regrets that I have. And I really, a lot of times put my work first, either working late at a client saying, I'll be home in an hour. And then it would be two hours and it'd be three hours. And I missed out a lot on my kids' lives. When our oldest was um, six, going into first grade, my husband, who was a police officer in South San Francisco, um, decided to leave the force and stay home with the kids. And so he was home with the kids for 12 years. It gave me permission to, unfortunately, follow my dad's footsteps and be a total workaholic. And that is one thing I'm actually working on right now is getting past my addiction to work, which is very rewarding financially, but I think spiritually and as a complete person, it is, um, it is not the end all be all. So some of the challenges really were allocating time. When Zeke was a police officer in the first six years of my son's life and the first three years of my second child's life, I never made time for myself. I would try to steal two hours on a Sunday to play soccer. I would not spend time with girlfriends. I would not do girl weekends. I mean, I think I went on my first girl weekend four years ago, five years, five years ago. And my first girl trip week a year and a half ago. I just didn't really make time for me. Um, the other thing I didn't really make time for, in addition to not enough time with my kids, um, was my relationship with my husband, which really suffered as a result. And of course, that has negative impact on um, children as well. So I bought the myth that women can have it all. And if there's anything for women coming up behind, until we have a, a chance to really change the way here in the US, especially the way society is towards women, supports women, 
um, our careers, the, the way that we are paid, the power and influence that we have in this world, there has to be a, a realistic approach to the fallacy that women can have it all. So if you could go back and do something completely differently, what would that be? You know, that's such a, an interesting question um, because it's, it's like, is that with the full knowledge of what I have now? Because those experiences, both positive and negative, give knowledge and wisdom to be able to, to go back. I don't think I would have been equipped to be able to really approach certain things. So, you know, what would I do differently? I would have been a lot more mindful of my time with my children and my husband. I would not have put work for everything else, but my work, my identity was so tied to my work that I've, you know, I've had to unravel that over the years. Yeah. I would have spent more time with my husband and my kids and not make my work, you know, my primary focus and the the primary thing that I associated with my identity. But the thing is, is that if I hadn't done that and I hadn't had those experiences, then when I turned 37 and realized that, no matter how hard I worked, there were, there were ceilings, there were obstacles, there were doors that would never be opened, that it wasn't just how hard I worked, but it had to do with who I was as a person, my lack of pedigree from my undergrad and my master's degree, which are both from Cal State Hayward, which is now Cal State East Bay, it's just not working for like a big tech company or a big company, and then being a woman, even a cis het white woman, and I definitely have privilege in that, there are doors that were definitely not open. That fueled my desire to open up doors and create greater opportunities for others. So if I hadn't gone through all of that, I wouldn't be doing that work, which I take great pride in. And while I wish I didn't have to do it, I'm very passionate about making it so that we do have a more level playing field with more equitable opportunities, not just for women, but for those that don't have the same privilege growing up. So I was having a recent conversation with my daughters um, who are also in college right now. And I was talking about how we had a perception of what a kind of woman you needed to be to get up and be a leader. And so you kind of tried to incorporate a lot of those habits or, you know, persona to make sure that you get to where you want to be. And now the perception is you can be yourself and you can still make it. What do you think? Like, can you really be your general self in this day and age and still make it? I think you still need to conform to certain expectations and standards. But what we're seeing more and more, especially with our kids' generations, the the Gen Zs of the world who are saying, we refuse to play by those rules. We refuse to ascribe to those expectations. The more that we can see the expansion of what's expected that we conform to, I think the greater opportunity we have to be able to be ourselves and to be the best versions of ourselves. What you brought up that I completely forgot about was, like you said, we had to take on certain um, very, in, in my opinion, very male dominated, very analytical. We had to let go of our feminine selves. We had to let go of the things that make us really powerful and effective and um, create a more balanced um, society or boardroom or company in terms of our, our feminine traits. And I know I rejected a lot of those and over the last five or six years have worked on stripping out what I call those adaptations to fit into a very male dominated world. The work that I'm doing now, it's trying to show up as myself without those adaptations, being okay, saying something about my intuition, being okay about saying it's okay to feel something. 
you know, and not be stuck in the head, but you can have stuff that's stuck in your heart and in your gut because there's a lot to be said for intuition. Malcolm Gladwell has a book called Blink. And when I read it in preparation for writing my book, Piloting Your Life, because I did a bunch of research for the book, in addition to interviewing 35 diverse women from around the world, I was finally able to appreciate and then give myself credit for feeling things, knowing things, seeing things without being able to articulate them. And that just because I couldn't articulate it did not mean that it didn't exist or that my opinion or my thoughts around something weren't grounded in fact. And the facts were things that I'd experienced and things I was able to see, but I couldn't pinpoint it because my brain was processing. My subconscious was processing things faster than my brain and my, my mouth could articulate. So my hope is that our kids will be able to continue to to expand the definition of what's acceptable. And then the more the boomers kind of move out, you know, the more, and unfortunately us Gen Xers, we're a small generation sandwiched between two very oversized generations. So our ability to influence isn't as great as what I would like it to be, but I think we'd still have an opportunity to influence and embrace what we're seeing um, our Gen Z kids bringing to the world. And I learn from my kids every single day. And I try to bring that in to who I am and how I show up. And I think that's something that I see a lot of other Gen Xers doing as well. Yeah, they do help me connect with my teams. Were there instances where you had difficulty being heard and what really helped you get through that? (laughs) I continue to have trouble being heard and I'm very frustrated by it. You know, you talked about me being a speaker. I have a book. um, I blog regularly. I have a YouTube channel trying to get more active on TikTok. So just to try to get some of my thoughts that are out there And I am really good at saying things people are thinking, but have trouble articulating. And I'm also really good at saying things other people are afraid to hear. So on a broader level, I think I'm not being heard as much as I'd like on, you know, the various platforms that I'm on. But the good news is that for those people where some of my things uh, resonate, I may not have wide distribution, but I have deep and meaningful impact. But if you're t- speaking, talking specifically about in instances where maybe I'm the only woman, you know, my investor stuff, the thing that is really frustrating about being a woman investor, especially over the age of 50 in Silicon Valley, you know, because of ageism and sexism so quickly dismissed. And oftentimes uh, if I'm the only woman in the room, I'm considered somebody's wife or the help. And it isn't until they find out I'm a commercially rated helicopter pilot that they start to take me seriously. But even still, because I tend to see things about two years before other people, oftentimes they look at me crazy. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never heard of that before. And I'm very quickly dismissed. And I am, I am a big personality, you know, it's kind of hard to ignore me, but, um, some people really, really do. I don't have the answer on how best to be heard. My executive coach has been working with me on tone. So instead of me always being at this level, she wants me to regulate, you know, my voice, be softer, quieter. So maybe the change in tone might get people to hear me, people being mostly men. But no, it's still something that that I continue to struggle with. I mean, even one of my clients isn't listening to me the way that I would like them to. And I'm changing things up and I'm just continuing to test because I don't, I don't have the answer. Based on your experience, are there certain things that women do that don't get them where they want to be? And are there certain qualities that we should develop to get more from whatever we are trying to achieve? I actually love this question, but I'm not going to answer it the way that you want me to. I think we women 
have been bending over backwards, trying to contort ourselves to fit into spaces that um, don't want us. And so really it's less about us doubling down and it's less about us changing. And it's more about the men in the space and them doing the changing, them starting to open up and giving us the freedom to operate and be in a way that really contributes without us having to adapt, conform, and contort ourselves to fit into those spaces. I would like to see us asking more and demanding more of the men in in our various different situations and challenging them to do the contortions. Maybe not even the contortions. I guess I feel like open up the space so that we can really breathe and thrive. Absolutely. And I think it's a partnership. Just women talking among themselves is not going to help. We need to have ambassadors. We need to have advocates on the other side as well. To your point, We all have to work for this together to make it happen. Because we all benefit from it. And I think that's where there's a scarcity mentality on the part of men. And there's a lot of, there are a lot of scared men out there, especially cis het white men out there who think they're going to lose something if somehow um, they give up the space or they, they allow others to be who they are and show up how they are, whether it's women, whether it's black people, whether it's brown people, whether it's folks in the LGBTQ plus space. And I don't see life as pie. I see, I see there's an abundance of opportunity and we will all benefit with opening things up and creating more because we will create more for all. It's not finite. Unlike time, unlike water, you know, I think um, by us opening up and allowing for greater diversity um, and not adapting so much to what the mainstream is expecting that we create new and more interesting opportunities for all of us. And we will all benefit and men will benefit in ways they can't even imagine, but have trouble seeing. So on a fun note, you are a commercial um, licensed helicopter pilot. Yeah. That, that is so fun. Just saying it makes me so happy. <laughs> And it makes makes me sound so cool just saying it. So clearly that makes you the coolest person around. How did that come about and why helicopters? Well, I, fl- I flippantly ask, answer when people ask, well, why helicopters and not planes? And I say, well, because anybody can fly an airplane. It's kind of a stab at, at airplane pilots, but also flying helicopters is really, really hard. Um, there are about 5,000 of us women helicopter pilots in the world, and there are fewer than that who are commercially rated and then beyond. And I've been privileged to fly with, you know, I think no fewer than six or seven um, women helicopter pilots who are instructors. I'm just, I'm just, I love that I've had that around me. So when I was growing up, my dad um, flew, he had a Cessna 152. He flew fixed wing out of the Hayward Airport in Hayward, California. And um, because my dad worked a lot, one of the things I love to do is when he would go flying, let's say on a Saturday to keep current, he would take one of us three kids up. And I always loved going up. I loved flying, but I never had an interest in flying airplanes. And then when I was eight, I got to go up in a helicopter at an air show at the Hayward airport and just said to myself, one day I'm going to fly one of these. Didn't tell anyone else. When I was in college, I looked at taking uh, lessons, but I didn't have a lot of money and I couldn't afford to do it. And they wanted me to fly airplanes first before getting my helicopter license. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. So when we moved down the peninsula from San Francisco to Redwood City, we would, my husband and I would drive by the San Carlos airport where there were a bunch of helicopters. And I would say to him, and he was the first person I told one day, I want to fly one of those one day, I want to fly one of those. So when I was 37 or 38, he gave me a discovery flight, hoping I would shut up, hoping I would think it would be too expensive, too loud, too something. 
And much to his chagrin, um, I just said, I'm screw it. If I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. And I decided to get my license. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I am not mechanically inclined. I was a girl growing up. My dad was not like a mechanic or anything. So I didn't know anything about engines. Weather and stuff was hard for me. Physics is hard for me. Um, aerodynamics, that kind of stuff. Within 10 months, I had my private rating. And uh, within a couple of years, I uh, realized that I narrowed my, well, I, my training gave me breadth of experience over time, only flying around the Bay Area. I narrowed my skill set. I wanted to be safe because it's only a hobby. And I didn't want to put myself at risk, which would put my family at risk because I was the primary breadwinner. And so I decided to get my commercial rating. And so I went ahead and did that in 2015 and just recently picked back up. And I'm flying about every two weeks now around the around uh, San Francisco. But one of my favorite things is to fly underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. Oh my God. Okay. So I have to take a ride with you at some point. <laughs> I would, I would love to. I am, I'm, I'm shaking most of the dust off and or rust off. And I'm hoping to start taking passengers up in the next couple of months. So absolutely. would love to meet me over at the Hayward airport and I'll take you flying. You got it. But congratulations. It's, it's not a small feat. And the one thing that you prove is you don't need to know everything to get what you really want. As you said, you know, you're not that great at physics, aerodynamics, but you got your license. That's, that's the key. You got what you wanted. So congratulations. Awesome. Thank you. So Teddy, you do so many different things in different areas. So what really drives you? Well, this may come as a surprise, but two things, fear of failure and fear of being mediocre. Both of those have, have really driven me in my quest for new things, great things, big things, new adventures. I've also been very motivated by getting the approval of my dad. And one of the things that I realized in the last couple of years that it doesn't matter what I've done, what level of success. And if anybody looked at my life objectively, it's I'm a, I'm a success. I've done a lot of things financially, professionally personally with the kids, with the husband and, you know, everything else. But what I realized is I was never going to be good enough. And unfortunately it's because what my dad's parents did to him and my dad doesn't have the awareness to realize that he's doing the same thing to me. So for me, my kids will never know that feeling. And now at the age of 51, after doing therapy, after working with an executive coach, you know, gotten to the point that I'm now motivated to accomplish what I want and leave my legacy behind and be a good human being. And it's less about fear of failure and fear of being mediocre. So in closing, any final comments, Teddy, for our listeners? Absolutely. As I was getting ready, I, I had my 17 year old who is a they, them. So I keep referring to them as they, it's not more than one. It's, it's one. As I said, we learn a lot from our Gen Z kids. And Finn asked me this question. I'm like, oh, you know, I have two great answers on this. One, one of the things that I live by and I write down every day is to do one brave thing. There are a lot of things that I'm afraid of and I do them anyway. And I think doing one brave thing every day helps build the muscle. I think bravery is a muscle. So the more we do the little things, whether it's making a phone call you don't want to make, who likes to call the dentist office to schedule an appointment or calling the insurance company to deal with something or the bank and it's like, you know, you know, imagine our Gen Z kids who really hate using the phone. I mean, making those phone calls or it's something that's big, like putting out, um, asking for what you really deserve in a statement of work or in a job and asking for the money that you deserve or the flexibility or whatever it is. 
big or small, every day I try to do one brave thing. And I encourage women, especially to do that, even if it's one little thing and write it down and then reflect on it at the end of the week or the month or the quarter. The other thing which is tied into that is failure is an opportunity to grow and don't be afraid of failure. The only way that we fail is if we fail to learn from an experience. Now, oftentimes my mom always joked that I was the one, my mom would say, the stove is hot. And I'd be, how hot? I'd put my hand on it. And my mom would say, the stove is hot. And I said, really? It's hot. And I would sometimes do it twice. So some of us are idiots and it takes a couple of times for us to learn from it. But as long as we eventually learn from it, we can be brave and we can do something that we are super afraid of, or we think that we're going to fail at, and then we can fail at it and we can learn from it. And it is not a failure of anything. Those are, those are things um, we encourage everybody to do, but especially girls and women is to, lots of things are going to be scary in life. As long as you're not like truly doing something so dangerous that you're not recognizing the risk around it, go for it anyway. Thank you so much, Terry. This was such a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for all the great advice. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. This was, this was a lot of fun and a great way to start my day.